I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're approaching the end of this study on biblical church leadership. Um, this is actually number nine in this series, and we'll probably have two more. I don't think I can squeeze the last two together. Um, probably have two more. And and I just you know want to say this, as I mentioned in the past, some of you probably, you know, some of this you're hearing about elders and deacons. It may be the first time you've ever really heard um, this biblical teaching. As I mentioned also, a lot of times what when people are in church, um, you know, especially like a, a Baptist church, um, their understanding of deacons is solely based upon their experience. And uh, we went through quite a few things um, in our um, study last week regarding deacons. We talked about the New Testament usage of the word that's translated deacon and how it's normally translated servant because it specifically is referring to the one who serves others. We spent some time looking at the history of deacons in the church and how that changed over the years and, and now um, since the Reformation has really um, become in most churches, um, churches that you know, try to interpret the Bible in a way that is um, natural, um, it, it's changed a lot in the last 500 years uh, from what it was that, especially the thousand years before that. We also looked at some insufficient models of a deacon and then spent most of our time last week looking at Acts chapter 6 where we have a, um, a, an account of the first deacons. And we'll actually be returning some to Acts 6 as we finish up our message today on the essential servants who are deacons. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, right after um, we have the qualifications for elders, overseers, shepherds, uh, we have the qualifications for deacons. So let's go ahead and read verses 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober-minded, excuse me, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here we have the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, much like the qualifications for an elder. What, what must a deacon be? And in the qualifications that are given for elders and deacons, there are, there are two primary differences. The first is that an elder must be able to teach. Whereas that is not a qualification for a deacon. That doesn't mean a deacon is unable to teach. Um, it just means that it's not required of him to be able to, to teach. And, and it's speaking here, of course, of, of communicating the scriptures to others. The other qualification for an elder that is not required of a deacon is the matter of, of ruling or, or exercising oversight over the church. And those are the two primary differences. But what we'll know here is that the, the first three qualifications for deacons are stated negatively. And, and they point to the need for a deacon to be self-controlled. And I think you'll see that as we, as we go through this um, passage here, in this, this, um, these first verses. The first verse 8. He says, first of all, um, that a deacon must be dignified, not double-tongued. So the word dignified is, is speaking of, 
it's the overall aspect of, of the deacon, the overall character. He's, he's dignified. He's, he's worthy of respect. And being worthy of respect entails what these next six um, qualities, qualifications um, give here. First of all, he's, he's self-controlled in his speech. He's not double-tongued. And, and really the idea of being double-tongued means that he, he's not giving contradicting messages to, to different groups of people. Now, why, why would somebody do that? Generally speaking, the reason somebody tells one person one thing and another person another thing, mo- most often is it's because of the fear of man. He doesn't, he, he doesn't want to speak the truth. He doesn't want to speak the whole truth because he, he has a fear of what may come of it, what this person, how this person may respond or such. So that's the main idea here of not, not double-tongued. He doesn't give contradicting messages to different groups of people. But, but also in this idea of, of self-control and speech, um, you know, deacons, they, they, they need to be men who don't disclose information that they shouldn't disclose. Um, deacons obviously are serving people in the church. They, they're going to have information. They're going to know things that, that's not public knowledge nor should be public knowledge. And they have to be able to, to be peop, men who, who are able to withhold information that shouldn't be public. Um, and along with this, they, they don't engage in gossip, right? They don't engage in gossip. They, they don't listen to gossip, and they don't repeat gossip. So they're, they're self-controlled in their speech, and secondly, here we, we have the words that he's not addicted to much wine. Um, this, is, this is much, uh, very, very much um, the same as what was given for an elder. Um, you know, when we're told that he, he must not be a drunkard. Um, from the same word, it's, it's, it's pertaining to the word want for wine. And... You know, at, at the very least, it means self-controlled in his use of alcohol. Um, in Ephesians 5.18, the Holy Spirit is the one, we're told, who is to control the believer. Um, don't be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and really the whole thing here is, is that the Holy Spirit is, is the one who is to control the Christian and specifically the deacon here. It, it's not alcohol, or for that matter, any other foreign substance. Um, you know, the, the, the deacon, you don't want a deacon who's, even if it's legal, I don't think it is in South Carolina yet, but you go to New York or <clears throat> California or Colorado, a lot of these places, it's, it's legal to smoke marijuana. Well, you know, you're smoking marijuana, what... Um, I speak from experience. I haven't smoked any in over 40 years, but but I before I was saved, I did. And you know, you you don't. Something else is controlling your mind. Something else is controlling you, and, and that's the main idea here. He he's self-controlled. He doesn't allow something foreign to um, control him, because a lack of self-control in this area obviously. It would blemish his testimony, but it would also hinder his work. It would have a great potential to hinder his his work as a deacon. The third thing we see here is is a self-control and his desire for material gain. And it specifically says not greedy for dishonest gain. So the prohibition is actually against being greedy for dishonest gain. But why would somebody be greedy for dishonest gain? Well, it, it really starts with being greedy for any kind of gain. Um, all Christians are, are warned about the love of money. Paul would say later in this, in this same letter, right in chapter 6 and verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And if a man is, is, is greedy for dishonest gain, he, he is obviously disqualified from being a deacon. But even if, if he's greedy for any kind, you know, just greedy for gain, he wants, he, he, he wants money. Really, it becomes an idol in his life. This is what he's pursuing. He's pursuing wealth. He's pursuing money. Then, you know, that's probably not the kind of person you want to be a deacon either because he's, he's going to be prone um, for this greed for dishonest gain. So we could really sum up these three negative qualifications by just stating that a potential deacon must be one who is his self-controlled. He's, he's controlling his tongue. He's, he's not allowing his emotions or his own personal will or the fear of man to um, control his speech. He, he controls... Um, anything that goes into his body that, that would take control of him and not allow the Spirit of God to be controlling him. And he also is self-controlled in his desire for money and material gain. So these three um, qualifications, they, they really kind of go together, for encompassing the whole of the, of the, the character of the man, that, that he's someone who is self-controlled there are not other things outside of him controlling him and then we come to the fourth one and and i summarize it this way um, he must believe embrace and live sound doctrine uh, look at what um, paul writes here he says in verse 9 they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience um, of course, the word mystery here is, as Paul uses it elsewhere, it's, it's speaking of, of God's revelation, something that had been hidden at one time. It had been a mystery, but, but now it has been revealed. Um, you see that used by Paul several times in his writings. And, and what he's saying here is that a, a potential deacon must know the scriptures that have been revealed. They must know this, the mystery but not only that, they must believe them and hold them dear to, his, to their heart by, by embracing them and making them part of his life. He says, he says he must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. So what we have here, he's holding it, he's embracing it. it it's not just a matter of, of head knowledge. It's not just that, that he has knowledge of, of what the scriptures say. Yes, he needs that. You, you can't hold dear to something that you don't know. So, so there's a knowledge aspect of it, knowing the faith, knowing the revealed word of God. But it, it goes beyond that. It, it, it's, it's holding on to it. It's embracing it. And he's making it part of his life. He says with a clear conscience. In other words, he's doing so without hypocrisy. It's not just that he says, okay, yeah, I, I, I know what the scripture says. I believe it. I hold to it. And then he doesn't live it. His life contradicts. No, he has a clear conscience. He has a clear conscience. He's, there's not hypocrisy. Um, so what he says he believes and holds dear to is supported by his life, how he lives. And, and this is so important, right? Right? Anybody can, anybody can, you know, have knowledge of the scriptures and say that they hold to it, but, but do they have a clear conscience? We're, and of course, it's like the elders. We're not talking about perfection here, right? Because none of us are going to attain to perfection here in this world. But, but what we're saying is this, this is the course of his life. He knows the scriptures, he embraces them as his own, he holds them, and he lives them. Really, the next two qualifications are, are actually a practical application of this qualification. That he believes, embraces, and lives sound doctrine. Well, that, that's got to be 
tested. That's got to be proved. Look at what um, verse 10 says. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's the word blameless again. Meaning, you know, that, that there's no, there's, there aren't accusations against him that, that can stick. Anybody can be blamed for something. But, but the idea of this word is, is, is he's blamed for something and, and it doesn't stick because it's not, it's not true. So really the last thing the church wants is an unqualified deacon or an unqualified elder. And we, we focused on that when we were studying about elders. A man who says that he holds the mystery of faith with a clear conscience must prove that he does before he becomes a deacon. He must be tested. That is, he must be examined and it needs to be found out if he's truly worthy of holding the office of a deacon. And there are no better circumstances under which he can be tested than, than in the place where he's continually under pressure to serve others on a consistent basis. Where might that be? In the home. In the home, exactly. And isn't that what Paul goes right into next? In these next two verses? He, he shows that this man who will be a deacon must be a faithful leader of his family. Um, look at verses 11 and 12. Their wives likewise must be dignified. Same word used there in, in verse 8. Worthy of, of honor. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, this, is, uh, this passage, this verse 11, is um, interpreted a couple of different ways when he says, the ESV says, their wives likewise must be dignified and goes on and gives some qualifications. Um, some have pointed out, and rightly so, and it's interesting that Paul does not give any qualifications for the wife of an elder, but he gives qualifications for the wife of a deacon. So some have taken this verse and they said, okay, um, along with Romans 16.1, where Paul mentions Phoebe, a servant of the church. Remember that word deacon is translated servant most times. And they take this passage here and, and they, they combine it with Romans 16.1. And they say, oh, this is talking about female deacons or deaconesses of the church. And, and they attempt to make the case for female deacons. And, and there are a lot of uh, you know, conservative, good expositors who, who take this position. Uh, personally, I don't see enough evidence in the New Testament to come up with the office, official church office of, of a deaconess or of a female deacon. However, as I've said before, you know, we, we need to be gracious toward other believers in, in churches and their church polity, and especially in this matter of, of deacons, because we really don't have a lot of revelation given to us regarding deacons. And, and that being said, I, I believe that Paul is speaking here of the wives of deacons, not female deacons. And remember that one of the qualifications for an elder given in verse 4 says that he must manage his own household with all dignity. If you look back at verse 4, you'll see that. And I really believe that these qualifications for a deacon's wife would also apply to an elder's wife. And he says here, he says that she, too, like her husband, must be dignified. She must be worthy of honor. She must not be a slanderer, literally a devil. That's the word for devil. Um, but it's speaking of one who accuses falsely. She must not be one who accuses falsely. Um, she must be sober-minded, that is, temperate, restrained, and faithful in all things. 
It, it, and the question is, why is all this required of a deacon's wife? Well, it, it's really quite easy to see, isn't it? I mean, she is going, to one extent or another, she's going to be involved in her husband's ministry of serving others. She's going to have sensitive knowledge about people that others in the church do not have. She's going to be dealing with problems alongside of her husband and, and serving alongside of him in, in sometimes delicate situations will, which will require a, a mature Christian woman, one who meets these qualifications. And of course, the same can be said of an elder's wife. And so... It's interesting that these qualifications for the deacon's wife are given in conjunction with the qualifications for a deacon. And, and I think we can draw this conclusion here. If a Christian wife has a Christian husband, then her spiritual maturity is, is generally, generally, and keep that in mind, I know there are exceptions, but her spiritual maturity is generally directly tied in with the spiritual maturity of her husband. There, there are exceptions, and, and one of those exceptions could be that a so-called Christian wife may not be a genuine believer. Uh, we know there, that happens a lot, you know, not just with Christian wives, but Christian husbands and children, etc., And there could be other factors involved as well as to why she's not a spiritually mature woman. But generally a Christian wife who is, who is dignified, not, not slanderous, but rather sober-minded and faithful in all things, is a Christian wife who is being led and brought to Christian maturity through her husband's loving, godly example. And through the time he spends with her in the scriptures and in prayer. She's spiritually mature often because her husband, both by example and by encouragement, has her by his side. So she's involved in the local church where they're not only being ministered to, but they are ministering. And if a man doesn't take the time to spiritually lead, spiritually lead his wife and, and love her and serve her, then there's no way he's qualified to be a deacon servant. In this testing ground, the greatest testing ground is right in the home. He goes on here he, in this passage and um, he, he says uh, in verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Well, that's the same thing we saw for elders, right? Earlier in the chapter. Literally, a, a one-woman man. And I'll just repeat what, what we said about that in the qualifications for an elder. Uh, what's he talking about, a one-woman man? Well, he's not talking about polygamy. He's not saying, well, you've got to make sure he only has one wife at a time. Um, polygamy was uncommon. It was abhorrent. It was not accepted socially at that time. Um, it still isn't, right, in our country. Happens, but... Um, it's not saying that he can't be remarried after the death of his wife. That would be highly unlikely. Um, it could mean that he can't be remarried after divorce. And many people take this to be the case. Um, but, but the primary meaning here is it, it's more than simply not divorced. It's a one-woman man. It, it's faithful to one's wife. Faithful to his wife. This is the only woman in his life. This is the woman that he is devoted to. He's single-minded in his devotion to his wife. There's no, there's no other woman in his life. There's, no, there, there's nothing there concerning another woman. He's completely devoted to her. And he goes on, and again these qualifications that have to do with his family. He says here in verse um, 12 as well, managing their children and their own households well. 
So a deacon must manage his children and his household well. And the word manage means to, to devote to, to guide, to, to busy oneself with. So the potential deacon is a man who is so, a, a man who, it's not a man who is so busy with other things that he neglects his family. That he doesn't spend time with his wife and his children. That he leaves the wife to rear the children. No, he, he's to be actively engaged in the affairs of his household. Um, this is where the testing ground comes. In the home. Uh, when I was um, going to be a missionary with the mission board, um, I had to, you know, give them all my doctrinal beliefs and my philosophy of ministry. I had to put all that in writing and had to be all checked out and everything. And then I had to sit down with three men who were on the board of the mission that I was going to join. And they had my doctrinal statement. They knew my philosophy, philosophy of ministry. They were, they were only really interested in one more thing, my character. Of course, I had references too, right? So they not only called me into this meeting with these three men, but they called my wife, the two of us. And I thought, oh, that's nice. They're going to question her too. Well, I don't know how many of you knew Ken Hay, director, founder and director of the Wilds. Well, he was one of the three men. And they asked me a bunch of questions, and, you know, I was doing okay. And then they started asking my wife about me. They wanted to know what she thought about certain aspects of my character and, and certain weaknesses that I might have. And uh, I'm like, whoa, I wasn't really prepared for this. But, but they were really doing something that was scriptural, right? They, they wanted to, they, they were asking the person who knows me best um, about me. And um, that's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, I, I, can, I can fool Sean. I can fool him. I can fool Webb. Bill's a little harder. I see him more often because we have, he's a deacon, but <laughs> I can't fool my wife. I can't fool her. She knows. She knows me. She knows my character. And, and really, this is the testing ground. This is the ultimate testing ground for any man. It's for a deacon or an elder, really, when it comes down to this. These are the qualifications of a deacon. He's, he's self-controlled in his, in his speech, in his appetites, in his desire for material gain. He believes and personally embraces and lives out scriptural truth. And he must be tested and proved to be a man who does truly believe, embrace, and live out the word of God in his daily life. And much of that testing is going to be done in his home. And the, and the, and the test will show that he, he has a godly wife who reflects his spiritual leadership in the home. And, and he'll be engaged with his family, bringing up his children, as Paul says elsewhere, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So these are the qualifications given to us. These are the only qualifications given to us in the New Testament for deacons. Paul goes on here in verse 13, and he speaks of the reward of deacons. He says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul mentions uh, two rewards here awaiting deacons who serve well. And there are some different ideas of exactly what these two rewards entail, but we'll, we'll look at them briefly. The first is when, when he says that they uh, gain a good standing for themselves. Um, most, most interpreters believe that this is speaking of uh, gaining a high degree of respect from those whom they serve. Literally, Gaining a good standing means they, they take a step up. Now, now, some have come out and said, well, this means it's a step up from an elder, from a deacon to an elder. But, you know, basically what they're doing is they're, they're reading 
church history and the way some of, some churches uh, develop this, like we talked about um, in the Episcopal Church, where before anyone can ever be a um, bishop, he has to be a deacon. Before anyone can ever be anything else in leadership in the Episcopal Church, he, he starts off as a deacon. But this is most definitely not what it's talking about. It's a reference to their standing in the eyes of others that they're ministering to. Because of their diligent, faithful service to the church, they gain a high degree of respect from those whom they serve. And, and the second thing he says here, the second part of the reward is that they also um, gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I really think this is speaking of, of their, their maturity, their, their growth in Christ. Um, a deacon faithfully serves Christ's church, and he becomes more and more confident in his faith in Christ. He, he's using the grace that God has given him to, to serve others, and God pours upon him more and more grace. And he thereby is maturing in Christ, and becoming more and more useful in his service. So I think those are primarily what, what Paul is speaking of here in these two rewards. But some, other, some commentators also believe that, that this is a reference to God's eternal blessing to the deacon when he receives his, his rewards for his service. When Christ will say to him, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And, and and, and obviously that, that's going to happen, whether or not Paul is referring to that here. That's definitely a part of it. Our, our service to the Lord, whether it's as an elder or a deacon or in, in some other type of ministry, in, in our daily ministering to our family, to our friends, to, to others, all of that, as we've studied on more than one occasion, will be rewarded by the Lord according to our motives according to how you know the lord knows everything right he's gonna he's the righteous judge and he's going to reward his servants so that's the reward of deacons that paul mentions here and then finally the activity of deacons and um, we can turn back to acts chapter six we won't read this full account again we we went through it last week but the question is what what what, what is it that deacons do? Uh, we already looked at some, some different things and how a lot of churches um, end up, in, in Baptist congregational churches, they end up using their deacons more as elders. Um, and, and I think most of us have been in churches like that, and, and, and quite frankly, that's what I started doing several years ago, and I've been honest with you about that. Not, not completely, but not, not that I haven't been completely honest. <laughs> we, haven't used, <laughs> we haven't used the deacons completely as elders, is what I'm saying. I just want to clarify that. <laughs> that would be a bad quote, all right? <laughs> but, you know, when, when we look at these first few verses of chapter 6, which we talked about, we agree these are probably the first deacons or at least forerunners to the deacons and we've already briefly mentioned um, these things but there, there are three primary activities of the deacons and, and this is I'm just telling you this is all we have we have Acts 6 and we have 1 Timothy 3 we've got a slew of passages about elders but this is all we have concerning deacons and the first thing we see here, and some of this is by way of review, we'll go into a little more detail this morning, but deacons support the ministry of the elders. This was the whole reason for the establishing of deacons, in which apparently progressed into the office of deacon. The apostles at the time were the spiritual leaders of this young church. In Jerusalem, right? The church was founded, and the in and eventually Ephesians two twenty tells us that it was founded upon the apostles and the prophets. And eventually, the apostles they um, began to fade away, right? So they were all martyred essentially, 
And, you know, so there's less and less apostles in the church. And the elders became the spiritual leaders of the church. There, there weren't any apostles, you know, in, in these cities. There wasn't an apostle living in Philippi. There, there wasn't an apostle living in all of those churches of Galatia, right? They were being led by elders. And, and the principle that we see here in Acts 6 continues in the church. Those who are in the spiritual leadership should focus on the spiritual ministry to the church and avoid being distracted from their primary calling of the ministry of the word and prayer. So as these first deacons were responsible to to see to it that the food distribution was done in a righteous way, um, they, they were for this because this would have distracted the apostles from the spiritual ministry that they were called to. And so the ministry of future deacons would be to take care of distractions that would keep the elders from devoting themselves to the spiritual work. Now that doesn't mean that that the apostles and later the elders were never involved in any kind of work that wasn't strictly spiritual work. Uh, It doesn't prohibit them from that. But it was really, the deacons were established as a protection for the spiritual leaders so that they could devote themselves to their work without being bogged down with distractions that the deacons were able and were meant to take care of. I mean, it still goes to today, right? 2,000 years later. Here you got a small church, and there's a small church, and and, and there's, there's one pastor, and uh, the church needs a new sound system. Well, the pastor doesn't know very much about sound systems, um, but he, he knows how to do research, and he knows how to make good, informed decisions. So he decides that this week, he's going to take a couple hours to check into sound systems, And he's going to find out what's out there and what might be available and what might work for the church. Well, he underestimated. A couple hours turned into a couple days of of searching and and finding out. And and what happens? Well, his his spiritual ministry, the the preparation of, of messages, the the planning for spiritual growth in the church, the, the interaction with others in the church on a spiritual level, um, it, it suffers for it. Now, if there had been a, a deacon in the church who could have taken on this research project, then, then it would have saved the pastor uh, the distraction and allowed him to devote himself to his spiritual ministry. And that's, you know, that's a, a present-day example of what you know, what, what deacons were initially um, established for. So they could take care of these things that, that needed to be taken care of, but were really a distraction from the spiritual leaders to be able to accomplish what God had intended for them. And, and so we see really here, even in Acts 6, that, that deacons identify and meet tangible needs. Um, in this case, it was, you know, distributing the food to the um, Hellenist, the Greek um, widows who were being neglected. That was, a, that was a real need. It had to be taken care of. In one of the chief ways that, that a deacon serves in the local church is doing just this, identifying and meeting the tangible material needs of the church. And you ask, well, what, what are we talking about here? What kinds of demands? Well, really, there are many. There are many. There are church programs, which would include all children's ministries, outreach ministries, social media, audio-video ministries, visiting shut-ins regularly. There are other demands associated with the facilities, both upkeep and improvements, yard maintenance, security, finances, and other things. There's a whole slew of things that, and you know this, that have to be done in, in any church. It doesn't matter if it's a church of, of 25 people or a church of, of 
10,000 people. Obviously, things are going to differ, but there, there's a whole slew of things that have to be done, and somebody has to do them. And in a lot of churches, it, it falls on the elder, the pastor. And, and again, it's not that the elders aren't involved in these ministries. They surely are. But the el- remember the elders' primary role in the church Two things, right? Overseeing and shepherding. Two of the, the two of the synonyms for elder are shepherd and overseer. And um, so they are involved. If a local church has biblically functioning deacons, then they will be men who will be ministering according to their individual gifts and skills to carry out And not only to carry out by themselves, but to recruit others to help with these various ministries. Um, Anybody here that doesn't understand football? Okay, I knew you all understood football. (laughs) So one author compares biblical deacons to the congregation's offensive, offensive linemen. Their main job is to do what? Protect the quarterback, right? The quarterback is leading the team. The offensive linemen rarely get the attention. They rarely get the credit that they deserve. But if they don't do their job, then the quarterback is not going to succeed. And the football team is going to have a really tough time winning the game. And the deacons protect the elders from distractions, and they keep them from being overwhelmed by practical demands. This is, this is what we see here in Acts 6. The only passage that we have that shows us deacons actually functioning in a church. I meant to put this in your notes, and apparently I neglected to. You might want to write this down. This is, I took this um, from one commentator and I think it's really good. He said, elders lead ministry. Deacons facilitate ministry. And the congregation does ministry. Elders lead ministry. Deacons facilitate ministry. And the congregation does ministry. Um, and, and of course, th- those aren't absolute distinctions. You know, elders and deacons also do ministry. Um, Elders also sometimes facilitate ministry. I just can say, you know, that that right now, as the pastor of this church, that though we don't have a a plurality of elders yet, um, and our deacons are in many ways acting as elders, um, even in light of that, Right now, it's the best it's ever been since I've been the pastor here. I can't speak to before that. Um, in that, you know, a lot of these things that I was doing solely on my own are being done by other people in the church. And, and, and those of you who do them know who, who you are, and, and most of you know who they are as well. Um, it's, it's a tremendous blessing to see that you know there's a lot of improvement to be made um but you know right now a lot of these things are being done that really do um free me up some more for for spiritual work and you know that's that's where we want to head to uh continue down that path um one last thing that deacons do here is they protect and promote church unity. And again, we, we touched upon this um, briefly, that there was a practical problem there in Acts 6. The Hellenist widows in the church were being neglected and not given their proper share of the food, but there was an even more serious problem, right? There was complaining. A complaint came. Grumbling. And, and we know that complaining and grumbling is, is often the 
the precursor to infighting, infighting, schism, and division in a church. And this is, again, one of the primary jobs of a, of a deacon. A deacon is to promote church unity. And, of course, if he is to promote church unity, then he himself must be in fellowship and in agreement with the elders and other deacons in the church. A deacon should never be complaining about anything in the church. If, if, if he has a complaint, then he should take it directly to the elders. Remember his self-control of his, of his speech? He should take it directly to the elders and, and, and work out any complaint that he has with them. His job is to promote church unity, to, to, to put out these fires that crop up, which, which are often you know, misunderstandings. And, and, and deacons can, can save the elders a lot of trouble by, by doing just that, by promoting church unity. Of course, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, um, to a church that had division and schism. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I mean, this is the work of, of the whole congregation, but it's specifically a task given to deacons. When a deacon hears a complaint from a, a, a member or members of the congregation, you know, he shouldn't just turn a deaf ear to it. He should confront it head on. He should find out the reason for the complaint. He should try to determine if it's something he can deal with or if he needs to get the elders involved. And it, it all goes back to his supporting the ministry of the elders so that they can devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. You remember Ephesians 4.11? It tells us that the elders, the shepherds, teachers, are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And although it's the deacons who facilitate the ministry, it's, it's the elders' responsibility to make sure that the deacons are equipped to facilitate the ministry. You know, really, when it comes down to it, deacons are a reflection of Christ. In his prophecy, one of the ways Isaiah represents or presents the Messiah is as the servant of Yahweh. Several chapters there in, in the 40s and 50s, we see um, Isaiah doing just this. So when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he presents himself as the servant of whom Isaiah prophesied. And, and in Mark chapter 10, we have recorded the incident when James and John request of Jesus that they be able to sit on Jesus' right and left hand in his kingdom. And, and as you know, this creates a great stir among the twelve. They're not happy. The other, the other disciples are not happy with James and John. And, and Jesus addresses them in, in Mark chapter 10, in verses 42 through 45. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you <clears throat> but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many jesus tells his disciples that if they really want to be great then they must be a servant. There's that word translated deacon at times. It must be a servant, a deacon of others. He tells them that he himself did not come to earth to be served. There's that word again, deacon, but to serve. We, we might say that Jesus was the first deacon of the church. And those who serve as deacons in a church are doing no less than continuing and reflecting the ministry of Jesus Christ. Ignatius of Antioch. He, we're told he was probably born around A.D. 35. A couple years after Christ's death. 
and, and he's one of the church fathers, and he, he asserts that deacons have been entrusted with the service of Jesus Christ. If the Lord places you as a deacon in his church, then, then you are a blessed individual who has been given the privilege to represent and reflect Jesus Christ, the servant of Yahweh, to his people. What a special calling that, that is for a man. And we, we need to pray that the Lord would raise up for our church faithful deacons who, who understand their calling and devote themselves to faithful serving, faithfully serving the church, as well as faithful elders. The Lord Jesus is the servant of all. When he was on the earth, he continuously served. And of course, the greatest ministry that he had was providing salvation for lost sinners by the sacrifice of himself. Even as we saw that he is the example for elders, he is also the example for deacons. And as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, as we worship him, as we remember the great sacrifice that he made for us in giving his own life, shedding his own blood for our sins and providing the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to the Father and eternal life, let's also remember that that, that sacrifice that he made is an example of service, not only for elders, not only for deacons, but for all of us, for all of us, because we're all called to serve one another, right? We're all called to serve one another. And I pray that the Lord would help us to make this a, a regular prayer for our church, that God would raise up servants who understand their biblical calling whether it be elder or deacon, and that they would fulfill the ministry that God gives them. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help our church as we go forward um, pursuing a, a biblical understanding of church leadership and putting it into practice the best we possibly can. Lord, we thank you that you are the servant of all, that you came not into this world to be served, but to serve and give your life a ransom for many. Thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. Lord, bless us as we celebrate at your table this morning. May you encourage our hearts. May you... Help us, Lord, to come to you with our sins confessed, gratefulness in our hearts, rejoicing in your provision of salvation. Make us, Lord, servants like you. In Jesus' name, amen.